the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Five one forty eight. The following program is sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Today on Know the Truth from Philip DeCourcy. The key is not the size of one's faith, but the strength of its object. When it comes to your faith, when it comes to seeing God work in your life, don't start with your faith, your belief, and work forward. Start with Christ and who He is and work backwards. Your faith will grow as your understanding of Him grows. And it's a lesson we need to learn. If you grew up attending a church camp or even if you've been to a weekend Christian conference, chances are you know what it's like to have a mountaintop experience. It's a feeling of elation that comes after spending a powerful time in worship with God's people. Today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy says these experiences are not bad. They're an integral part of the Christian life and can actually give us strength to get through moments of despair or doubt. With a message titled, Highs and Lows, here's Philip DeCourcy. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9 and verse 14. I want to speak on the subject, highs and lows, because that's the experience of the Christian. There are highs and there are lows. And we're going to see that played out in the life of the disciples of the Lord Jesus. Because here we have Jesus, Peter, James, and John descending from Mount Hermon, following the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ, where we saw the glory of Christ on display And as they come down the mountain, they are immediately confronted with the faithlessness of the crowd and the defeat of the disciples. In the space of one day, they go from the elation of the mountaintop to the deflation of the valley, from a spiritual high to a spiritual low, and that's often the case. And we're going to kind of just pick the text apart and learn some lessons about highs and lows. Number one, I want us to consider what I'm calling the descent. The descent. Back up into verse 9. After the transfiguration, here's what we read. Now, as they came down from the mountain, that's where I'm getting my thought. There's a descent here. We've gone from the heights of Mount Hermon and the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ, now down to the depths of the valley. We're at ground zero, and we meet a broken world, a disappointed father, and a defeated band of disciples. So I want you to just mark that transition, mark the descent that's taking place here. Verse 14, and when he came to the disciples, that's the nine remaining disciples because he had only taken three, he meets them in the valley after the mountaintop. We go from the transfiguration to this scenario where the disciples weren't able to cast out this demon. So that's the descent. Let's move on to what I call the debate. This is verses 14 through 18. 
After Jesus and the three disciples come down and join the nine disciples that are remaining, Jesus finds himself in the middle of a confab and a conflict. The text doesn't tell us what the dispute was over, but we would assume this. Hey, this man brought this demon-possessed son to the disciples. Hey, guys, can you fix him? Can you heal him? Can you deliver him? They didn't. They couldn't. And therefore, it raises all kinds of questions. Well, if you are representatives of Jesus Christ, you can't deliver this boy from demons. It calls into question what you're saying to be true. It calls Jesus' authority into question. And I think a dispute ensued from that. A man steps forward and says, I'll explain to you why we're debating this and why there's a big dispute here, according to verse 16. I have a son. He's mute and he's tormented and he needs to have a deliverance. And I came to your disciples and they fell way short of what was needed and what was desired. And here's the point. What we've got in this story in picture form is a defeated church in the presence of a desperate world. Here's a father pleading for a game changer. You know, from he's been a child, he's been afflicted. And then the father's pleading, and the disciples don't deliver. Now remember, back in Mark 6, they are given authority to cast out demons. And they do it on several occasions. That's what's so mystifying about this. And that's why they'll say, Lord, what happened? Why couldn't we cast it out? Because we have done it before, and today we couldn't do it. And Jesus will say, I'll tell you why. Prayer and dependence upon me. That was missing, guys. You're beginning now to depend upon the gift and not the grace that stands behind the gift and the giver of the gift. But I want you to see a defeated church in the midst of a desperate world. Isn't that a sad sight? The the, the disciples added hurt to this man's sorrow because they didn't do what they could do, and they weren't what they should have been to him. And remember, they couldn't do is not the case that they couldn't do. They just were not able to do. And I just want to be challenged by that, that these men who should have been the solution were a problem to this father. Their inability, their ineffectiveness gave an opening to the detractors of Christ— There's a dispute going on, and the disciples are the cause of it because their failure have raised questions about the ability and authority of Jesus Christ who they're representing. That's challenging, guys. I like the story of the Catholic high school and their basketball team were having a really rough season. They were just getting blowout after blowout. They were the punching bag for everybody in the league. And it got so bad that before one game, after a series of losses, the priest gathered the church and he says, guys, I want you to do something. Please don't cross yourself before the game because you're making the church look bad. (laughs) You know? And Jesus, I think, would say something like that to us, you know? Stop it! You're making me look weak before the world. You're making the gospel look powerless. Now, listen to me. I'm not advocating for perfect Christians or perfect churches because they don't exist. That'll all be after the rapture. When we're saved to sin no more, we're glorified. Not arguing for a perfect church, not arguing for a perfect Christian, but I am arguing for a fact of churches. Churches where worship is real, where love is authentic, where giving is generous, where the presence of God is felt, where obedience is spontaneous, where the heart for the lost is large, and where preaching is put into practice. 
I'm looking for churches influenced by God who are influencing the world, not churches who are being influenced by the world because they're so weak in their lack of trust before God. Listen to these words by a man called Victor Murray in a book called Christian Education. There are those into whose eyes comes a faraway look when you talk about the church. It's a supernatural society, the body of Christ, His spotless bride, the custodian of the oracles of God, the blessed company of the redeemed, and a few more romantic titles, none of which seem to tally with what the outsider encounters at St. Agatha's Parish Church on Sunday. That's powerful. I mean, that's how the Bible describes the church. And you know what, folks? Let's imagine somewhere out there, God's working in the heart of someone, and they've cracked open a Bible. They're not saved yet, but they're reading it either for the first time or they're going on past knowledge. You know what? This is what the church ought to look like. This is what Christians are. On a Sunday morning, should they turn up here? Will they find it? Or should that person be the person you sit next to in the office tomorrow morning? Will they see it? Or will you be a contradiction of the claims of Christ? opening up an opportunity for the detractors of the gospel to get into a dispute. Okay, let's look at the disbelief. The disbelief. This is verses 19 through 24. There's an impasse here. Jesus kind of laments the fact that the crowd is faithless. They're disputing. They're questioning his authority because of the disciples' failure. But thankfully, the crowd's dispute doesn't prevent Christ from acting in compassion. Aren't we glad? Though we test His patience, we don't exhaust it. And sometimes God just does stuff out of sovereign sympathy, where we see God proves Himself to be true and every man a liar, regardless of what men think. But into this context, a man comes, as we've already noted, and makes a plea before the Lord Jesus that He would help His Son. He asks for compassion and He asks for help from the Lord Jesus, according to verse 22. If you can do anything, I'd really appreciate it. Could you show some compassion? Could you help? And we know from the text that the issue is not the lack of power on Jesus' part. The issue will always be an absence of faith on our part. And so while the man challenges Jesus to show compassion and help, Jesus then challenges the man to display faith in the face of a faithless generation. I want you to notice verse 23 and how it begins. If you can believe, it's kind of a backhand slap. You would translate it like this, because he says, if you can do anything, and Jesus is kind of rhetorically saying, what do you mean, can I? Implication what? Of course I can. That's not the question. The question is, do you have faith to believe all things are possible? Does your faith embrace all the possibilities and probabilities that are implied in who I am? Now, that stirs the man up. I think he gets the rebuke because he immediately says what in verse 24? Lord, I believe. Don't be questioning the fact that I don't believe. I do believe, and you've challenged me. What do you mean, can I? And I've thought about it. You can But I want you to say, Lord, I'm on a journey. I'm on the front end of this. I believe. Help my unbelief. Folks, that's a very encouraging verse. And please don't miss the fact that this man's asking for more faith is an act of faith in itself. When you pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, that's an act of faith. And so the man is saying, look, I've got it, but it's not as pronounced as it could be. 
But here's what's important. You need to understand it was enough. We don't have time to go to Matthew 17, 20. But Jesus, in speaking about this incident to his disciples, Mark doesn't record it, he says that a mustard seed of faith can move a mountain. And it's important that you keep that in mind when you look at this verse, because this verse, prosperity, health and wealth, gospel preachers like to misuse this verse. Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? If you have enough faith, you're going to see big things. But that's not what the text is teaching. It's just saying, do you have faith to believe that all things are possible? And the man says, my faith isn't as big as it could be, so Lord, help me. But yes, I have faith. And Matthew's kind of implying, this guy has got mustard seed faith. It's not the size of his faith. It's the understanding of who he's dealing with. And that's what you need to grasp in this text. Don't misunderstand the text. Lord, can you do anything? What do you mean, can I do anything? (laughs) You not know who I am? Understand who I am and believe, because that's the issue. The issue isn't the size of your faith. The issue is the size of your understanding of who you're dealing with. What do you mean, can I? Of course I can. Now, do you believe all things are possible, given who I am? And the man says, I do, and there's room for improvement. And the fact that Jesus heals his son tells us, hey, it's not about the size of your faith. It's a little faith in a big God that makes the difference. I mean, what's better? Little faith in a big God or big faith in a little God? Well, you know the answer to that. That's the point of the text. And it's a mistake we make all the time. And it's a lesson we need to learn. The key is not the size of one's faith, but the strength of its object. When it comes to your faith, when it comes to seeing God work in your life, don't start with your faith, your belief, and work forward. Start with Christ and who He is and work backwards. Your faith will grow as your understanding of Him grows. It's not about jenning up and stirring up your faith, you know? It's about coming to a bigger understanding. It's convincing yourself He's able. He can. And all you're going to need then is a mustard seed of faith that grips that. And that makes the difference. Some years ago, we owned an older F-150 pickup truck. We'd been given it kindly by a friend. And for a while as I drove it, I found the brake pedal pretty soft. And so I took it down to a mechanic shop and they bled the system just to check. And, and I, you know, the pedal got harder for a while and after a while it would get soft. But the brakes did work and I just kind of put it down. It's an older vehicle. That's the way it's going to be, you know. That was good for a while until one morning I came up onto the property here on the top lot. And as I put my foot on the brake, the pedal went to the floor. There was no brakes. Now, thankfully, I was only doing about 25 miles an hour, so I kind of went around in circles until the thing exhausted itself and stopped. And thankfully, there was no cars. It was a Saturday morning. I kind of broke into a cold sweat because I just realized, man, I dodged a bullet. I mean, my memory of that incident is, number one, how marvelous is the providence of God. Lord, thank you that the brakes failed at 25 miles an hour on a flat car lot not on a speeding highway or a downhill slope. Number one. And then number two, I learned another lesson. When I put my foot on that brake pedal, I had utmost trust in the brakes. They might have been soft, but they had worked every day prior to that. 
Every time I needed them to work, they worked. And so I put complete trust in that. Nothing wrong with my trust. What was wrong? The object of the trust. It let me down. And that's what you need to remember in your walk with God. It's the object of your faith. It's trustworthiness. It's dependency. It's ability. That's what counts. And so it's little faith in a big God, not big faith in a little God. It's what Jesus challenged this guy. What do you mean, can I? You've got to convince yourself I can. And when you convince yourself I can, even faith the size of a mustard seed will move mountains and your son will get healed. But I've spent too much time in counseling with Christians and others who spend so much time in introspection looking at their faith and trying to make their faith big. Your faith becomes big as Jesus becomes large. And when your faith is small, I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, it's because Jesus has been diminished or clouded or overshadowed in your mind somehow, some way. Okay, let me do the last two thoughts quickly what we might call the deliverance and the dismay. If we were to look at verses 25 to 27, we would encounter the exorcism, the deliverance. And what we see in that is the authority and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ exercised over the kingdom of darkness, as we've seen many times before. Again, Mark is showing us the supremacy of the Lord Jesus and why our faith in him is not ill-founded. But just in closing, what about the dismay? The dismay is verses 28 through 29, where the disciples feel like failures, and they approach the Lord Jesus for answers. It's in a house. Often instruction with his disciples takes place behind closed doors. Why could we not cast it out? This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. It's a real challenge. Jesus puts his finger on the problem. Prayerlessness. Powerlessness is always the case with prayerlessness. And time doesn't allow me to get into this. How would we explain their prayerlessness? I think an overconfidence from earlier success, where they lived on the edge, they drew from the power of God, they saw God at work, and over time they become like Samson, who went out at other times, not realizing that he was drawing upon the presence of God presumptuously. I think that went on with the disciples. As I've said, if you go back to Mark chapter 6, you'll see they were given authority and they displayed authority, but not in this case, because now they were focused on the gift and not the giver. They were not depending upon grace in the exercise of the gift. And so this is a case of insufficient prayer. Just let us be challenged. Our problem in life, in marriage, in our walk with God is often the case that we forget that we can do more once we have prayed, but we cannot do more until we have prayed. Prayer has become for many of us an appendix, a luxury. When according to Colossians 4.12, that the Epaphras wrestled, worked, served, ministered in prayer. Prayer is the work. Avoid the sin of serving the Lord prayerlessly and presumptuously, mistaking the gift for the giver, going on past actions and past grace and not updating and refreshing your walk with God and a renewal of your trust in Him. Let me finish with this. Look, the world we're about to go into thinks that prayer is harmless. You know, they think it's just religious child's play. 
It's people living in a little bit of a fantasy world, a world of make-belief. So, you know what? If that's the worst they're going to do, hey, they're harmless. And then some would go further than that, and I think this is where our culture is going. It's harmful. Because really, okay, we conclude it's harmless, but you know what? It eventually becomes harmful because people who live in this make-belief world, believing that actually there is a God who hears prayer and that makes a difference, well, you know what? That means that they're hoping for something that's never going to happen, which means they don't do the hard work of actually fixing what they're praying about. Remember the headlines in the New York Post after San Bernardino and the loss of 14 of our fellow citizens where the New York Post said what? God can't fix this. And they were responding to the tweets that went out and the messages that went out from politicians and statesmen going, you're in our thoughts and you're in our prayers. And they go, hey, stop this. And the implication is, this isn't harmless anymore. This is harmful. Let's pass gun legislation. Let's do the hard work. Prayer is bogus. Prayer is nonsense. It's platitudes. It's empty. Stop it. God's not going to come right in on a white horse and help us. We've got to help ourselves. That's humanism. And that's the sign of a secular society. And that's the challenge of our closing thought. We live in a secular society as the church. But let's go armed into this world that Jesus sends us into. Armed with the thought that the effective prayer of a righteous man that what? Accomplishes much That's what James tells us in chapter 5 and verse 16. We need to remind ourselves of that. so easy to forget that. It's not harmless because it is the slender nerve of prayer that moves the omnipotent arm of God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray uh, that indeed, on the one hand, we would get off our knees having encountered you, experienced you, worshipped you, loved you, Get off our knees and get on our feet and go out into a dirty world that needs the light of the gospel. Help us to make that transition. Help us to break the huddle. Help us to get about the mission of the Great Commission. But Lord, in a sense, help us to get back on our knees often and repeatedly because that's where power lies. That's where effectiveness is found as we come to you asking you for compassion and help to make us effective, believing that you can do all things, and we show our faith in prayer. And so we just pray that you'd help us to take this passage and apply it to our lives for Jesus' sake. Amen. Philip DeCourcy, helping us get through the highs and lows of the Christian life. You're listening to Know the Truth, and we're online at ktt.org. Well, this is an exciting month for Christians around the world. It's the 500th anniversary of when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, sparking the Protestant Reformation. There's a good chance you wouldn't be listening to us today if it weren't for the work of Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others. And who knows what the church would look like if they'd failed in their efforts to bring reform. Surprisingly, though, many Christians know very little about the Reformation beyond a few names and events. If that's you, we want to help you capture the fire of the Reformation in your own life by sending you a book called The Reformation Still Matters. As you read this engaging book, you'll revolutionize your own faith as you learn to cling to Scripture like the Reformers. The Reformation Still Matters is yours today when you give a gift of any amount to know the truth. Call 888-644-8811. 
or give online at ktt.org. And if you prefer, mail your donation to Know the Truth, Post Office Box 30250, Anaheim Hills, California, 92809. This book can add depth to your relationship with Christ as you learn to appreciate the faith and sacrifices made by Protestant leaders over the last 500 years. Request The Reformation Still Matters when you call 888-644-8811 or go to ktt.org. We'd also like to send you a free CD message from Philip called It's Time to Be a Protestant Again. Rediscover what it means to be an evangelical and a Protestant as you listen to this CD. Ask for this free message when you call 888-644-8811. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us again tomorrow as we look at Mark chapter 9 and the meaning of true greatness. That's Wednesday on Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. If you're over 50 and concerned about any of the following, stay tuned for an exclusive free bottle offer. Are you concerned about your heart health? Are you interested in healthy brain function? What about joint comfort and energy? Well, if you answered yes to any of these questions, we want to send you a free bottle of Krill Omega 50 Plus now with CoQ10. Krill Omega 50 Plus with CoQ10 combines krill oil with fish oil in one tiny pill. And this little pill delivers big health benefits to your heart. Your joints, your arteries, and brain. And with CoQ10, you'll enjoy extra energy too. Best of all, you can get a free bottle of Krill Omega 50 Plus with CoQ10 today. Just pay for shipping. Call right now and request your free bottle. Dial 1-800-229-3992. That's 1-800-229-3992. 1-800-229-3992. Again, call now. 1-800-229-3992. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.